take our Bibles and let's head to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we want to be this evening. Unusual message, but why don't you, ushers, if you haven't handed out the notes, would you be so kind as to hand those out to those throughout the room so they can follow along? And we're turning in our Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's what we've been doing. If you're visiting with us, we've been doing a series, Faith's Facts for the Family. We've been talking about husbands and wives. We've talked about kids' roles with their parents. We've talked about the uh, issues of parenting and some of those practical areas. What I'd like to talk about tonight is deal with some practical areas that talk to the young people of all ages that are given in this text. But before we do that, let me remind you that there are a lot of top 10 things. Go on your computer and just for fun, type in top 10 lists you will find top 10 lists for foods, for shoes, for hairdos, and tufts are in them. Um, you'll find all variety of things, top 10 cars, top 10 books, top 10 films. Uh, let's just you know, do one list of ourselves here this evening. Top 10 fast food restaurants, what are they? McDonald's is gonna be there, yeah. Chick-fil-A will be on here. Burger King will be on here, what else? I don't know if Hardee's, I don't remember if Hardee's is on this one. Arby's will be up here, I think. Okay. I should ask, what's your top 10? Okay, maybe that. But this is a national survey, the top 10. Let's see if you fit into the top 10. Sonic Drive-In. Didn't do too well in our area, did it? Got shut down. Okay. Number nine was KFC, Pizza Hut, Dunkin' Donuts, Taco Bell, Starbucks. Okay, we're getting narrowed down. What should be the next ones? It's not. It's not. Okay. Burger King will be in the top five. McDonald's will be in the top five. Okay, Wendy's is in the top five. Dairy Queen, there's Wendy's, there's Burger King, there's Subway. So, and number one, top ten, it's going to be Mickey Ducks. Yeah, Mickey Ducks will be up there because most everybody has worked for them. They're very good in advertising. So they're top ten. Okay, now if we were to do, what are the top ten tidbits of advice that you'd give teens? We would have a variety here in this room. Okay, we'd get all kinds of things. So let's go back to the Word of God. And these aren't the top ten only things, but these are the ones mentioned quite frequently or more emphatically in the Scriptures. In fact, the books that we're choosing to go from, if you're unfamiliar with some of these books in the Bible, there's a section in the books that when the, and any Bible student who's serious about will have to understand this, that the Bible is broken down at times for study into different sections. You can have historical sections. You can have didactic or teaching sections. You can have prophecy sections. In the Old Testament, there's one section that's called poetry. Now, some of us don't like poetry. Some of you love poetry. But in that studying, you have to understand that when you go to these different sections, they write poetry different than they write history. And so when you interpret, when you go to those passages, you need to be aware of what it, where it fits so that you're understanding, you're interpreting it properly. And so in that Old Testament poetry section, it is also called wisdom literature. That's probably the better modern way that we would refer to it, is that those books in the, in the Old Testament that are filled with wisdom literature. Now, without looking at the screen, do you know which books they are? Now I'm just, now I said don't look at the screen and what do you want to do? You want to look at the screen. Okay, the, the five books, there's five of them. Okay, Job is going to be there. Psalms. 
Yeah, you got them. Okay, just take them in that order. And they are really, really important books. And they talk about major issues of life. Okay, now they read different. Their poetry isn't like our poetry. When you read Psalms, you say, poetry, it doesn't rhyme. Their poetry was written different in ancient days than our poetry. And so they had a different semblance. But understand that the rhyme, the meter of reading, the idea of how they would do it, they did a lot of acrostics, alphabetical. In fact, Psalm 119 is all based upon the Hebrew alphabet, the first letter of the of each verse that goes through. And so you go through these books and they answer major, major, major questions. Life-changing questions like the book of Job. You can see Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Solomon, Solomon. They talk about the major events in our life. You know, worshiping God, loving one indivi another individual, the idea of what about what's wisdom living day by day. And so we're going back there and saying, now wait a minute, when we understand that when they were originally written, they were uh, some of these books, especially the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs, they had younger people in mind. It was a father speaking to the next generation. Now that doesn't mean young as in the sense of, okay, he was in his 40s and they were in their teens. That could have been the case. But he could have been older and his kids could have been married by this point. But they talk about issues that are important that young adults need to make sure that they are listening to, that they are understanding, that would make an impact upon their life. And those who are older would as well say, I still need to follow this, plus I need to make sure I communicate this. So what we want to do is we want to talk about what were some of the, again, this is selective. It's not by anything by, you know, the number one is number one. And I'm just taking 10 of the most frequently talked about topics in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in particular, and reference Psalms at times, what are those major, major topics that are talked about that the older generation in the Bible days wanted the younger generation to get a handle on, to get a grip on, which, by the way, the older generation need to review regularly as well. Here's what I've come up with, is number one, number one, remember real joy is found in following God, not in getting things. Because back in Bible days, there was this tendency that people thought, if I had more, I'll be happier. If I have a really fancy chariot with chrome rims, you know, and I have 10 horsepower up front, then I will be the talk of the town and I'll have real happiness. If my wardrobe is more than anybody else's and I have to build a room called a closet to house all of my different outfits, then I would be really happy. If I had the most beautiful garden, if we had a swimming pool in an arid desert country. We'd be really happy. It's a good thing that our society doesn't think that way anymore, right? It's still a battle, is it not? That people look at things. Well, here in this, in this book, he is writing and he's going to talk to his son. And let me throw something that's very unusual. He is going to start off talking in Ecclesiastes. He's going to make this statement that it's a reality that says, hey, listen, son, daughter, young person, it's okay to have fun. There's nothing sinful about having fun. If you serve the Lord, if you follow the Lord, it doesn't, mean, doesn't say you have to be miserable and you can't enjoy things in this life. In fact, he talks about that, and we're jumping, and I'm not sure which I told you where to start. We're going to chapter 2. We're starting in chapter 11, first of all. But he's, but he's talking about, in this passage, down in verse 9 and 10. Look at what he says in, in Ecclesiastes 11, 9 and 10. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. 
Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart. Put away evil from your flesh. For children, childhood and youth are vanity. He goes on. Remember now your creator in the days of the youth, while the days of evil come not, nor the years draw, and you say, I have no pleasure in them. His point is this. It's nothing sinfully wrong to have some type of enjoyment. In fact, let's take it to the New Testament. In the New Testament, when the comments are made, he is writing to the rich people, and he isn't saying that it's wrong to have riches. He says it's wrong to trust in the riches. It's wrong to make them your God. But he makes this comment, charge them that are rich in this world not to trust in riches, but in the living God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. Is it wrong to enjoy a vacation that you can afford? You got to say yes or no, okay? Don't, don't say, I, I dare not say something because I'll convict myself. Is it wrong to take a vacation? No, no. Is it wrong to have nice air conditioning in your home? Is it wrong to have heat? No, no. Okay, is it wrong to have decent clothes? No. Is it wrong to have electronic devices? Is it wrong? No. No, he's not saying that in Scripture. So let's, when we communicate this idea, let's be careful how we say things, okay? It's not evil, but what becomes wrong is when all of a sudden that becomes the goal, that becomes the intent, that becomes the purpose, that becomes the driving point. In fact, he warns in this text, and it's funny the way he does it. He continues into chapter 12 and he's saying, okay, it's, it's okay, you can enjoy some things, but remember your creator. He's more important than all these things. And he goes on, he says, by the way, you should remember your creator while in the days of your youth, enjoy these things and take advantage of things because he's going to talk about what happens as years go by. As years go by, all of a sudden, you can't enjoy things as much. In fact, as you get a little bit older, you're, you're going to be even more limited in what you can do for the Lord God. In the next few verses, he talks about some of the aspects of growing old. And so you understand, he says, okay, when you get too old, you simply can't enjoy things, you can't do things that you used to do before. Some of the folks sitting here can say, that's absolutely true. Because look at the text as that unfolds. He describes what it's like to get old. The keepers of the house, they become shaky. He says in the next couple of verses. He talks about the strong men, they bow themselves. The legs aren't what they used to be. Okay, all of a sudden our body is getting a little bit, the grinders cease because they're so few. What's he referring to as the grinders? Okay, your teeth become less. He talks about the windows being darkened. What windows? Okay, the eyes, it's being weak. The doors are being shut. Okay, he's talking about your mouth. You're not able to speak as clearly. You, you know that I'm getting older. You can tell that. Okay, the sound of the grinding is low. What's that mean? What's that? It can affect hearing, and it could be you're eating the softer foods, okay? Uh, he talks about the rising at the voice of the bird. Can't sleep, okay? You say, no, that's not true. My grandpa, he sleeps all the time. And when he's sleeping, nobody else can hear anything else, okay? That's what they say at my house. Okay, they, and he's saying, no, no, no. As you get older at times, there's more insomnia. These are the wrong times. The daughters of the music are brought low. Now what are you talking about? musical tones, everything has to drop down because what is affected? Our hearing is being affected. He talks about what you're becoming more afraid of what is high because of the instability, the care of, of being in the way, not going, concerning about falling. The almond trees flourish. I don't have to worry about this one. 
Okay. Your hair does what color? Yeah, it starts whitening out. Okay, and so he talks about the idea it's okay to enjoy, but remember from, little, from youth on. Remember this thought. It's God. Everything has to surround about God. You have to be focusing on the Lord. So it's okay to say, okay, I want to enjoy things, but they're limited. You have to make sure you're serving the Lord first and foremost. That even while you're enjoying some of the blessings, I, I tell you what, I was just listening to some gentleman talk about it. He said, I never expected, never expected to enjoy certain things in this life. He had dedicated his life to missions work. And as a missionary, he had sacrificed, he had done a lot of things. But he said there were certain times that where I was overseas, I got to go places and to see things that most people can't. I got to go to some of the most beautiful areas of the world, the forest or the beaches or see exotic animals. And it wasn't that that was my focus. My focus was serving the Lord. But as an added benefit, the Lord allowed me to enjoy certain things and sights that I wouldn't have ever been able to enjoy if I hadn't been in, in this service for the Lord. And he wasn't taking advantage. He's not a lazy individual. But the individual is saying how God added not only service but the enjoyment of some of the creation the enjoyment of being able to do things with family and expose their kids to certain elements in the world and in, in society and sites that, that were just extremely enjoyable. And praise God, God does that, that God allows that to happen. Solomon says, now in my life, he's talking to his son, he says, in my life, I, I did it wrong. I knew about the Lord. I wanted to, to you know, talk about spiritual things, but I got caught up with all the other peripheral stuff to the point that all of a sudden it became my most important goal. Go to chapter 2. And that's where this whole book kind of unfolds. In chapter 2, he talks about his journey, his journey to find what really was going to be exciting, and he did what most people did. He started doing the things that the society says will be lasting and peaceful and enjoyable. And he starts off in chapter 2 saying, I tried the party realm. He says, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy the pleasures. Behold, he says, I found out it was vanity. Because in verse 3, I sought in mine heart to give myself to wine. Yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, I laid the hold of the folly thereon. Till I met and see, to that I might see what was good for the sons of men. And so he says, this is where I went. I went this route. I thought that the wine and the partying, that would be, that would be most pleasurable. And he ends up saying it was madness. It was madness. What good does it bring? You know, I get out, go out and party hardy, and the next day I still have that same emptiness. Or I have a hangover. And he says it didn't last. I found out by the bad things. So then he says, I tried something else. Verse 4, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted the vineyards. I made gardens, orchards. I planted trees. Now for some of you, you say, that doesn't strike me as something really fun to do. That sounds like work. But back in Bible days, this would have been, this is where I'm trying to find in my house. You, you might say today, I, I got more and more you know, bigger stereo systems, bigger TV sets. I got a fancier car. He goes on, he says, I made pools of water to wherewith the water the wood brings the trees. I got me servants and maidens. I had servants born in my house. I had great possessions of great and small cattle. Above all, nobody else in Jerusalem had as much as I had. I gathered silver and gold and peculiar treasures of the kings and provinces. I even had me a stereo system that nobody else had. Look what he says. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. He didn't have recordings. He had the live thing. 
He had the orchestra that could sing him to sleep, that could play him to sleep. And he says, I had all these possessions. I had everything that everybody wanted, and I found nothing in it. It wasn't meaningful. He ends up in verse 10 saying, I found out that it wasn't that which really satisfies. In fact, verse 10 is interesting. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I didn't keep anything back from them. I got whatever I wanted. And I didn't even have to use a credit card. I just had that cash. And so here he was, a wealthy man, able to do all these things, and he concludes in verse 11. He makes the comment, he says, I didn't find happiness there. I didn't find satisfaction. I looked in all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor I had labored, and behold, it was vanity. It was vexation. There was no profit under the sun. Then he talks about, in chapter 2, he goes a little bit further, in 12 and 13, he talks about he won education. I am going to learn. I am going to do self-improvement. I am going to take the route of learning how to deal with things and have all kinds of degrees. I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. I, I try to persuade types of things. And he saw in verse 13, I found out that all this education it too was folly because we end up in the same spot. We end up in the same place. For all this study, it's better than ignorance, but in reality, it doesn't really satisfy the degrees. Does that mean we should stay uneducated? No. Does that mean that we shouldn't ever drink any type of beverages and we shouldn't have gardens or we shouldn't have some nice homes? No, he isn't saying that. He's just saying that we don't put our trust in those things, that they aren't the most important things in life. It's a walk with the Lord. And he concludes very simply, he says in chapter 12, where we started, he says, listen, this is the conclusion of the whole matter. Remember now your creator and your youth. In chapter 12, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God shall bring into judgment every work. His idea is this, listen. Listen, as an individual, focus in on serving the Lord first and foremost. God says, I will provide all your needs. If we seek first the kingdom of God, he will take care of everything that we need. Not the other way around. And so his first tidbit of advice to his son is make sure your priority is serving the Lord. Follow the Lord. Give the Lord first place. That's got to be your first goal in life is to please the Lord. And he says that's where you're going to find real peace. That's where you're going to find joy. There's a gentleman from British history. His name is Horatio Bottomley. And he is in that, in that era of the early 1900s. He is a hero to, to some of the people of his society of his day. He's an individual who he uh, went into politics and he became a crusader for justice. He opposed some of the growing um, companies that were monopolizing a lot of the industry, the same thing that was happening in America that uh, Teddy Roosevelt was opposed to. And so he, uh, he would be this crusader for equal justice, for the idea of economic uh, fairness across the board. And so he would promote those and he became a hero in the lights of the eyes of the people. But what happened is he was fighting all this crime, fighting all of this corruption, and then in his later years it was found out that he was being bribed as well, that he was guilty of being corrupted. He was sentenced to seven years in prison, so he goes to prison, and when he goes to prison he is meeting a chaplain. And the chaplain in the prison is sharing with him how this chaplain has served the Lord. And he found out that this chaplain is saying to him, when I was a young man, 18 years of old, and he gives the date. And he gives the city that he was in. Again, I forget off the top of my head what the name of the city is, Bristol. That he had been in Bristol on a certain night where that preacher by the name of Canon Atkins was preaching the word of God. 
And the chaplain is talking about and saying, I heard that gospel that night. It was a one-night preacher uh, service, revival meetings. And what happened that night, he says, I went forward, gave my life to Christ, and I've been happy ever since. Well, here he is, Horatio um, uh, Bottomley is sitting there listening to this man, and he remembers when he was 18 years of age, they're the same age, that he had gone to Bristol, invited by a friend, and he had heard Canon Atkins preach that one-night revival meeting on that same time of the year, the same year. He was in the same church service that this preacher was in. But he said, and he relayed to the preacher, he said, when the message, at the end of the message was done, they gave an invitation. He says, I knew in my heart. I knew I need to surrender my life to Christ. And people were going forward, but he said, I remember thinking, all these years later, I remember thinking, I am going to run my own life. I'm going to do what I wanted. He said, I walked out of that service determined to do my own thing. I went into law school, went into my career, and he's sitting in prison now, across from a chaplain who was in the same church service, and they had totally different responses to the gospel. And Bottomley made the comment, he said, what a difference where lives end up made by early choices, pivotal, pivotal choices, when we come in face-to-face -face contact with God. You know, that could be you. That could be you. God is saying, hey, I want you to make sure you serve me. Your whole life pattern could be changed by whether or not you yield and say, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, that's one tidbit. That real joy is found not in things, but it's found in serving the Lord. There's another tidbit that's very important. It's in Ecclesiastes as well, and it goes this way in chapter 7. He talks about this. And we build on that thought based in chapter 7 where he talks and makes a comment about your reputation. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. In Ecclesiastes, he says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of your death is the better than the day of one's birth. What's he mean by all this? Okay, well, let's back up. You and I basically have three names in general truth. We have a name that our parents gave us, okay? We have names that basically our close friends would call us, okay? We respond to. It might be a nickname, a pet name. And then we have the name that most people would describe you, okay? That if your real name, your parentally given name shows up, people would respond and they could describe you by this name or this description of you, okay? Let, let's do this. George Washington, what is he known as? Okay, The father of the country is basically what he's known as. Okay, Abraham Lincoln, what's his pet name, nickname? Okay. Now, it depends on your political point of view, but what is he most known by? What's Honest Abe? Okay, let's do this one. Okay, Tom Wolfe. What's his title? Okay, he's known as the governor. If you're not familiar, he's the governor of Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, what, this fella. Cheater. <laughs> and those who are for Tom Brady would say, you're just jealous of six rings. Okay. And you'd say, okay, he's an NFL great. He's an NFL great. Um, this fella. What's his phrase they use? Bam. Bam. Yeah. Okay. He's known as a famous chef. This fella. Any particular character that he's most known about right now? Iron Man, okay. What about this guy? <laughs> oh, listen to all the different comments, okay. Let's just give him, give him his nickname that we got him by. Okay, right now. So we have different names, we have different descriptions. When people think about you, what do they think about? 
do they think of something, would they say, cheater? Would they say, ooh, wow, bam, okay. Would they say, okay, that person's got integrity. That's your reputation. Young person, what he's saying in this, pass, in this passage is that you need to be very careful with your reputation. You need to be careful all the time with your reputation. It is so critical. He says a good name, a reputation, is better than, and he talks about ointments. Understand ointments in that context. That ointments were, could be an heirloom. It could be your savings account. In Bible days, they, their, their pension plan could be clothes, coins, or even heirlooms like the one that was broken and poured over Jesus' feet. Your perfumes were considered a savings program that they could be sealed up and they were precious. And so he's talking about that idea. Oh, by the way, there was, if you wanted to make recognition to people like your kings or, or people like prophets or people in authority, you would anoint them. They were given public recognition. At a wedding at times, they would, in public recognition and celebration, they would put anointing oil upon those individuals. So you have these, this idea when he's talking about better than ointment, it's the idea of, okay, public recognition, public celebration, public position, um, possessions. A good name is better than all that. Having, having a name where people know you and they see you and they say you are a person of good character and quality is better than having a position you got by corruption. It is better than everybody that they're feasting you and they're hosting you, but it's because they're afraid of you. And so he talks about that idea. And in, in sense of that ointment, better than, than all the celebration, the ointment's going to last longer. The celebration just goes quickly. Okay, let's go back to let's go back to the football championship. That some of you say, okay, you know, corruption. Okay, so right now, New England Patriots are the champions. How long is that going to last? And don't don't give me this thing that they all you know infinite. Okay, one year, one year. How long did the Eagles championship last? One year, one year. Because all of a sudden next September, what's going to happen? Everybody's going to they're going to have to vie for it all over again. The championship is great, but it doesn't last. And he is saying a reputation lasts. The reputation go long, long after these trophies. Your reputation will have greater impact than all of a sudden a public office or prestige or a celebration. The ointments may make you smell better for a moment, but more important is your reputation. Think about this. Jesus says to his disciples, by this shall all men know that you are my, my disciples if you have okay, a reputation of loving one another. Your reputation of love will be your calling card that you really are a believer. He even writes about that in 1 Peter 3. He says, okay, if you have an unbelieving spouse, you don't win that spouse other than, you know, not by, by the outward appearance. You don't win them. You win them by a reputation of a meek and quiet spirit. A reputation where you are sharing truth by living an honest life of integrity and, and consistency. And so reputation is so critical. It is so important that we're careful with it. But not only, not only do we have to be careful be with that reputation in the sense of having a good one, we've got to be careful that we don't ruin our reputation because a bad reputation can push people away from the gospel. Oh, it happens so quickly. Individuals, all of a sudden, they might see or, see or hear of something and they don't want to hear because Christians have a reputation. That church has this reputation. That believer has this reputation. A number of years ago, it happened in the turn of the, of the century that there was a lot of corruption going on in Christianity. Some of you remember this. That in the media ministries, and by the way, I, all I typed in was corrupt 
preachers. And I got this entire list. I'm not saying that they're corrupt, but this is what the world says. They throw everybody into this basket. Everybody who has a media ministry ends up there. That there's just that idea that there's corruption. And why is that? Because there was a few hucksters, and they were hucksters, right? And they were, they were immoral or they were unethical. And what did they do to Christianity as a whole? They marred the reputation. Let me show you a survey from 2002. A survey that was taken in the United States, and they asked, what are the top three sleaziest ways to make a living in America? Number one, drug dealing. Number two, organized crime boss. Number three, tele-evangelists. That was a slap against Christianity because some ruined the reputation. They marred it. Well, you and I want to be careful that we don't ruin the reputation of Christ. We want to be very careful we don't ruin our own reputation. In fact, he says, this reputation is so important, it'll make the day of your death better than the day of your birth. Well, that's easy to understand. Why is that? Because if you've lived for the Lord and maintain a good reputation, what will you hear when you walk into Christ's presence? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So you want to be careful with your reputation. You want to be careful with those areas of your life that impact your reputation, which we could just go on and say, okay, there's so many different things. What you seek after, what you make as a priority, what you say, how you talk, the company you keep. This all plays into our reputation. What you laugh at, how you respond to others when you're, when you're upset, your dress, your treatment of other people, your honesty or lack of honesty. All of this comes into play. Are you dependable? Are you an individual or kind? Okay, this plays into what reputation? And so he's talking to his son. He says, son, I want you to do this more than anything else. I, I, I want you to be taken care of. I want you to be able to provide for your family. But more importantly, you need to serve the Lord. And more importantly than your bank account and all the possessions that you get is that you have a good name. Not because it's my name that we're sharing, but it's your name. You need to maintain a good reputation. And he tells them, be so careful. And he's reminding us that it takes a lifetime to build, but we can destroy a reputation so quickly. Well, let me just throw up three examples. He's a mighty king. He's called the apple of God's eye. He is the, the one who is close to the Lord, and yet what do we often remember King David for? Well, the great things are, you know, he took out Goliath, but what singular deed is, is the mar, is the scar on his life? Bathsheba. We can talk about people like, like uh, Peter. Peter said, I will die with you. I will give my life but what do we often bring up when we talk about Peter? His denial three times. We have an individual in Scripture that when Jesus was saying, let's go and visit Lazarus, Lazarus has, has died. He responds and he says to, to the other 11, he says, let us go also that we may die with him. We're headed to Jerusalem. He's going to die, but I'm willing to die. And he makes it very clear. The others follow. They go to the tomb and Lazarus is raised. Do you remember who this is? We don't remember him for that statement. We remember him for the statement after the resurrection when Jesus appears and Jesus shows himself, but this guy wasn't in the room. He shows up later and he says, I won't believe unless I can see and touch with my hands. And we call him who? Yeah. Yeah. It takes just a moment to blemish a reputation. 
And Solomon, in all of his wisdom, is saying, listen, this is very, very important. Can you give me the third area that is really important? Now there's ten. We're only doing three right now. But this area. Daily, he's saying to his son, daily work on being more grateful instead of grumbling. Now, I take this in its preponderance, not from any singular text. Let's just take one book out of wisdom literature. One book alone that is filled with the idea of being grateful, being grateful, being grateful, being grateful, being grateful. Which book is it? Psalms. Psalms is loaded with all these different comments about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, enter his gates with thanksgiving, relying upon the Lord, trusting him, but giving him thanks and recounting his blessings, how he has blessed you in the big things and the small things. Give thanks to the Lord, he says, he is good, his mercy endures forever. He talks about, I will praise you with my whole heart. I will tell of your marvelous works. Then we go to the New Testament and the writers under the inspiration of God, they write with that same focus. They say, give thanksgiving. Give thanksgiving. Even when you give prayer requests, let your requests be made known with thanks. He talks about letting the peace of God rule in your heart. Be thankful. We read elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, give thanks to God for his indescribable gift. We read in the book of Revelation how they're going to say, we give you thanks, we give you praise because of who you are, what you have done. We're becoming thankful, even in a time period. They're talking about that time period of the tribulation, giving God the thanks and giving him praise. Reminding that we're not supposed to be murmuring and grumbling and complaining, but rather we're supposed to be individuals who are giving God thanks, learning to be content in whatever state, and then after he is being thankful to the Lord what the Lord has provided, Paul says, I am also thankful for what you have done. You have helped me and I my affliction. And then Paul by example gives us lots of different times where he commends and gives thanks to the people not to the Lord alone, but to the people who ministered to him. And Paul, who went through all kinds of difficulties and trials, he had an area that he really worked on. That area was learning to be content, to give thanks, and not to complain. Did he have moments where he was pressed out of measure? Yes. When he despaired even of life? Yes. But he keeps on having this overriding attitude and encouraging that we should be thankful people. We should be people that are being grateful, not grumbling. So we have to ask ourselves, is this an area that we want our kids to work on? And all of us would say, yes, I would like my kids to be more thankful. I want to encourage them to be grateful. Well, one of the best ways to encourage them is give them the example. Don't complain. Instead, be one who is grateful instead of grumbling. And we have to ask ourselves honest questions. Do you look for the blessings of every day? Or do you see only the negatives, only the pressures of the day? Are you thankful for what others around you have done? Or are you criticizing that they didn't do enough for you? Are we individuals who have actually thanked friends of late? That we have said, thank you for being my friend. Thank you for doing this to me. You say, well, they already know. But why not say it? Why not express it to them? Do you actually express thanks to God? Right, the last few weeks I've been trying to do this in our services. Take a moment and talk and give thanks to the Lord. And to just express that to other people that you're giving praise and thanks to the Lord. Even within our, our service, do you do that normally? Do you stop during the course of other days of the week and say, you know, God did something I just want to share. I'm so thankful with a coworker, with a family member. You're driving in the car. And just take a moment of praising him, giving thanks to the Lord and to others. Okay, there was, there's an article I read this week that I thought had some interesting thoughts. Very simple, very practical. If we develop a practice of thanking God daily, how does it benefit us? 
What does it do? And the author went on to say, here are some of the real simple benefits. You get your eyes off yourself. By just focusing and giving God thanks, it helps you perspective-wise. It'll remind you that you're not in control, but God is. You're very dependent upon Him. It will bless you in this, this area. You'll start recognizing more and more the little blessings and how many of them there are because you're cognizantly or in your mind working at giving thanks. It'll remind you how good God has been. How God has been so generous to you, it will, by reminding you, help you to grow in the emotion of love towards the Lord. It will force out that complaining spirit because there's no room left. Because you're becoming a grateful person. The enemy will flee. You do realize that one of the areas that Satan wants to attack us in is, is not being satisfied with what God gives. Go back to the Garden of Eden. How that was where he challenged Eve by saying God is holding out on you. But gratitude helps us to chase away the enemy. It'll refresh your spirit. It'll benefit you in the sense that you are going to have better and dearer relationships with people. Why is that? We don't like being around grumblers unless we're a grumbler, a complainer. But otherwise, we want to be around people who have a spirit that refreshes us, that is generous and grateful. And so this will develop even better friendships. And you will develop a reputation as an encourager. And so you and I say, okay, is this an important area? It's an important area. For teens of all ages to work at saying, I want to be more grateful. I want to work. Can, can I suggest two thoughts? In this family series, somewhere, someplace, I wanted to encourage this, and this is probably the most appropriate moment. Have you written a thank you note to your family? Have you written a thank you note to your kids? Letting them know how much you appreciate them. Have you written a thank you note of late to your spouse? I know it's Valentine's week, so it'll probably, you know, but a letter, a lengthy note to your parents, to your siblings, to somebody within your family. I can tell you from my personal experience that having written those notes and having been received those notes, that those become really, really precious items. I was reminded about that here just in the last couple of weeks. I was talking to my mom, and we usually don't have lengthy, long conversations. Um, they're usually real quick in what they want to do because they're just trying to keep warm in Minnesota. <laughs> so things are going. But she brought up, she says, remember that note you wrote me five, ten years ago? I don't remember it. But she still has it. She talked about it, and she said, I still pull it out and read it periodically. I know I do that with notes my kids have given. That periodically I pull them out and it refreshes the soul. Who have you refreshed lately? What family member have you given a thank you note to lately? Let's, let's take it even more. We're in communion. You have time during communion. Why don't you write God a thank you note? Give him the appreciation for what he has done for you. Work at being thankful, being grateful, not a grumbler. Three simple but profound tidbits of advice. Serve God, not seeking things. Watch your reputation and work at being grateful. Now, one of the areas of working at being grateful is simply let's sing. 